Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 306, Return of OREX, part two. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. On its way back to Earth as we speak is a mission called OSIRIS-REx, or Origins, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, and Security Regolith Explorer. This spacecraft launched in 2016 to rendezvous with an asteroid called Bennu in 2018. And once it got there, it did not orbit or crash land. No, this spacecraft had a more gentle arrival so it can take pieces of the asteroid with it on a trip back to Earth. With actual samples of the asteroid in tow, there are seemingly endless ways the scientists can use powerful Earth-bound instruments to help humanity uncover the secrets of the universe. Earlier this year, we sat down with Mike Moreau and Nicole Lunning to learn about the preparations that were underway to prepare for the sample's return on September 24th of this year. We talked a lot about OSIRIS-REx, the science, the mission, but I feel like we only skimmed the surface of what goes on here at the Johnson Space Center. Because once OREx touches down, the next stop is here, and it's where the science really takes off, but only if the samples are handled correctly. This is where the small particles experts come in. On this episode is Christopher Sneed, Advanced Small Particles Lead in Johnson's Astro Materials Acquisition and Curation Office, and Maritza Montoya, goes by Mari, Small Particles Processor, to go deeper into the curation process and what will happen after OSIRIS-REx returns just a few days from the release of this episode. With that, here's Christopher and Mari. Enjoy. Christopher and Marty, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. Yeah, very excited to be here. Thanks for having us. We are coming into the studio a day after what we uh, we organized in Osiris Media Osiris Rex Media Day, and we got people parading around, and there were there was a lot of excitement. What do you guys think about that, Christopher? I think it was overwhelming, but really um, very valuable for people to see all the work that's gone into getting ready for this mission. Yeah, not just the curation labs, but the places where we practice, the places where our engineers prototyped um, um, apparatus and and devices for the mission, and mm-hmm. also the research labs where um, some of the scientists will be doing some of the initial analyses of these samples. And so mm-hmm. that was all on tour yesterday, and I think that was great for everyone to see the scope of how we're preparing. Because we've been we've been having a lot of communications just about like getting people excited. And I think a lot of people are excited for this sample to be returned and enter through the atmosphere and it's this big grand event, but you got you guys are saying look how prepared we are. Look how much work we've done to make sure that once it does hit the ground that we are doing everything in our power to make sure that this sample is pristine, that we divide it and send it to the right um, scientists and there's a lot of interest. And I feel like this the people coming, the media coming on site was just kind of validation, at least for me, that there's a lot of people interested in this. And I wonder if that hit hit you, Mari, that mm-hmm. just to just see the number of people and be like, people are asking questions, like actively trying to understand what process goes into that. And there's, I mean, this like people are really into it. Yeah, it feels like uh, it's picking up speed now. And, yeah. you know, just seeing all those different groups of people come in, we had three groups come into the different labs and it was about seven to 10 people in each group. And it's just really nice to see everyone so excited. They want to learn so much about what we're doing here at, you know, Johnson Space Center and what we're doing in our curation lab. So. How about you? We're recording this in July. And of course, we have a couple of months, right? It, OSIRIS-REx is going to be returning in, in September. Mm-hmm. How do you guys feel in this moment? Do you feel like we're ready? Like there's a way to go? Does, is it actually becoming more real? Like, oh my gosh, this thing has been returning for years now. And now it's it, it's months away. It's very, very close. How does that sit with you? It just feels like, okay, so it feels like you're going at the top of a roller coaster. You're at the <laughs> tipping point and it's like, it's almost showtime. It's you can almost see like, over the edge. Yes. Like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to drop. I'm uh, going to exactly. drop. Exactly. <laughs> 
that's exactly how it feels. Like we're ready though. <laughs> Same with you, Christopher. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing a number of rehearsals. We just got back from Utah. We were there last week doing mm. um, a rehearsal for the recovery. And it just, it feels very real because, you know, we've been thinking about this since 2016, since it launched. Um, I've been with the mission about that long in curation. Mm. Um, and to see it come back in a couple of months is just going to be incredible. And, and, and every day is filled with a bunch of new things to get ready for and prepare and yeah. prepare ourselves psychologically for it as well. You've been with the project, you said, since 2016. Yes. And of course, I'm sure you had some some uh, work before that in your career to get you to that point and prepare yes. you for this moment. You, I, I, tell, tell, me, tell me about kind of what, what led you to where you are today. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, and I was doing research in an experimental astrophysics group. Hmm. Um, and this group was also, as a side project, looking at particles captured in aerogel. And they told me about this mission that was coming back called Stardust, which was going to capture comet dust in aerogel. And we were trying to understand how we were going to remove those particles from the aerogel and analyze them. And that became my undergraduate research project. And I started working on that more and more until in 2006, I was actually here at Johnson Space Center participating in the initial extractions of those comet particles from Stardust. Oh, wow. And ever since then, I was hooked. Yeah, because you you have all these theories, these concepts of how am I going to do it, and then they invite you to actually do the things that you've been imagining for that long. Exactly. Oh, that'll sell you. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, so yeah. this is this is a little bit like deja vu, that excitement of a mission coming back, watching it re-enter the atmosphere, um, come through the building doors at Building Thirty One, and when that canister lid opens, yeah, it's just going to be <laughs> something. And I know Christopher, you had a lot of work to do the same exact things, right? Prepare, think about how can we best you extract these samples, take care of these samples. And I absolutely want to circle back on that, Mari. Your history with oh, that led you to your role right now in Osiris Rex curation. So I started with a love of geology in my undergrad, and I kind of did field work for my research professor there on petrology, um, different mineral compositions that we were looking at at Big Bend State Park. But then once you once I dove into my master's program, that's where I kind of saw a, a path towards space science and NASA Johnson Space Center. And so when I got here. Um, I went under Christopher's wing and it was right away training me into ultramicrotomy, small particles, and kind of just expanding, you know, my sense of planetary science from there. I wonder why rocks though? You know, you said you, you always had a love of, mm -hmm. of rocks. Now at, at, at face value, it's just like, mm -hmm. why, why rocks? What was so intriguing uh, uh, to you? So I would take these road trips with my dad in Mexico and we were not really allowed to go hiking or anything like that. But I would just look at the mountains from far away and I'd be like, I really want to go hike those mountains. And then slowly but surely I found out in college that I could even study geology and go hiking, you know, as a career yeah. <laughs> if I wanted to. And <laughs> it kind of started from there. But it was environmental science that kind of hooked me and then ecology mm. and just like love for the environment. But then I don't know what it was. It was just the rocks. It was like, okay, th those are it. Those are puzzle pieces to like yeah. telling us the history of our world, of our planet, of our solar system. And that's what really hooked me on. That's fascinating. I had I, something similar. We're driving in the car. I was looking up though. I was looking at being a pilot and soaring through the skies and like that sort of thing. I was, mm -hmm. you know, I, I eventually was able to fly, never pursued a career in that pilot, but I know I, I, that I connect with that feeling of mm -hmm. just like, I want to go to there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to exactly. do that thing. That's so cool. Um, Big Bend State Park too. I've been wonderful it's place. It's an absolutely beautiful place. And it has, when you talked about the rocks and the mountains in the background, mm -hmm. it has that. It has, it so has you got to do that. that. That and all the, the sky over there just and looks the like a dome. It looks fake almost. It's just this starry night and it's the most beautiful place you could see stars, I believe. Super clear. Yeah, exactly why mm -hmm. I wanted to go as well. So yeah, you guys were both hooked on this. Let's let's take a brief recap because this is part two. We haven't done part one in some time now. So so just a quick recap of what we're going to be talking about here today. What we're, what we're going to talk about is OSIRIS-REx curation, this sample that's coming back, and 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 how we are preparing here, Johnson Space Center, for eventually the the big thing is of of course it needs to come back, but then what happens after that? But let's let's review what is so special about OSIRIS-REx. Went to Bennu. 
and it's and it's coming back. Christopher, if you can tell us just a brief a brief description of if you if someone said, well, what is Osiris Rex and what is its mission? How do you capture that? Osiris Rex is a mission to study the asteroid Bennu. Um, the acronym for Osiris Rex actually says a lot about some of the mission goals and accomplishments. Okay. Um, the O is for origins. We think that carbonaceous asteroids like Bennu hold secrets to the origin of the solar system. Um, spectral interpretation. We observe a lot of asteroids using from remotely from the ground, and we interpret their spectra to mean something about their composition. And we want to get samples and compare the spectra of the samples that we have to the spectra that we get remotely so that we can understand better what we're looking at when we're surveying the solar system for other asteroids. Um, resource identification. Um, we expect that at some point in the future, asteroids like Bennu will be a source for resources as we increase our space activity. Hmm. Um, security, we want to understand rubble pile asteroids like Bennu in case they have the possibility of hitting Earth one day. Hmm. Um, and so that was an aspect of that. And so that's the OSIRIS and OSIRIS-REx. So all of those things are of interest to um, this mission. Yeah. And the last part is the regolith explorer. Regolith explorer. Yeah. Yes. And this is a big part of it because it's the the interesting thing about Osiris Rex and it, it, it I mean we I think we've been mentioning but to say it very clearly is this this did not just go to an asteroid. It did not visit, it did not orbit, it did not land and stay there. It is returning. Yes. Returning to Earth with a pristine sample, a pristine uh, story of the of the solar system formation. Yes, the largest sample return that we have done since the Apollo era. Wow. Yes. So, and that's that's significant because why? What is good about having a lot of sample? So, if you take a mission like Stardust, which was scientifically very rich, um, you're looking at the smallest components of the asteroid dust. It was a very small amount. Um, and it's hard to understand things like, were there chondrules? Were there larger fragments that we recognize in meteorites in this comet? When you have a larger sample, you get a more representative um, sampling of this body and what's in it and what it looks like compared to meteorites that we have on Earth. And also, just having more sample means that that sample is going to be more valuable longer. Um, people will be doing research on these samples for decades, and there will be instruments that don't even exist yet, and those will be used to study these very same samples. And the more you have and the more pristine you keep that in your curation facility, the longer they are scientifically interesting and viable. And I'm glad you said that because that's not just notional. We just recently opened Apollo samples after 50 years. Exactly. Because we had the instruments. Mm -hmm. that we had better, cooler instruments to do cooler stuff. And uh, that, I mean, it, it is, it's not just notional. We actually did that thing. So you're thinking ahead. You're thinking yes. ahead. Well, we we want to do that again. As great as our instruments are right now, they're going to be better. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's huge. So. Um, of course, uh, this is, uh, we're talking about OSIRIS-REx and its importance and, um, it, we, it can tell us a lot about Mari what, what can, what can the Cyrus, you know, we, we can get a lot of sample, but what is specific about Bennu? What is specific about this particular sample that is interesting? That's got a lot of scientists excited. Mm -hmm. So Bennu is a carbonaceous asteroid, like Christopher was saying, and it's something that has the organic building blocks and it could potentially have these organic building blocks that started life here on Earth as well. So that's something that's really excited to look at and analyze, you know. Origins of life in the universe. Origins of life in the universe. That's exactly. it. That's all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's. Yeah. Um, also, to build on that a little, um, we know that meteorites that come from asteroids contain all sorts of interesting inclusions. Some of them contain grains of material that condensed in the atmospheres of other stars before our solar system formed. We call those mm. pre-solar grains. Um, we have inclusions that were the first solids to condense in 
the solar nebula, and these all tell us about the history of our solar system and perhaps how solar systems form, how common the process that formed our solar system is for other solar systems. I didn't realize that at the media day yesterday when, when we were going around to the different stops, you actually brought out some of the some of the instruments that were analyzing Hayabusa samples. Yes. And what I didn't realize, I thought Hayabusa was just uh, something in the solar system. But that story that you're talking about, Christopher, mm-hmm. it was telling stories about about other stars. Yes. Unbelievable. I, I didn't even think about that. One thing that I always like to think about when studying meteorites and studying inclusions like pre-solar grains is you're actually doing astronomy in the lab. You're understanding the nucleosynthetic processes and the evolution of the galaxy through analysis in a lab as opposed yeah. to remotely observing it. That's right. Uh, that's one thing. So I've, we've had a lot of uh, we've had a lot of folks from Astro Materials on this podcast, and one thing that has become increasingly clear to me is, you know, I say, I, what, Marty, when I was talking about like what's interesting about rocks, rocks are stories, mm-hmm. exactly as Christopher is saying. I mean, it's it's a it's a telescope into into another star. It's mm-hmm. it, but it's captured and preserved in a rock. It's not just dirt. It's not just a boulder. It's stories. Right. Puzzle pieces, I would say. Puzzle pieces. Puzzle pieces, because you're not getting the whole story, even at that, when you do get a sample. So obviously, you know, it's not. This is not just the sample returns, and you go out to the desert and you pick it out of a capsule and sling it over your back and walk it over to a lab. <laughs> there is a very defined process to make sure that these that the stories of these rocks are preserved and pristine, and we treat them and we treat them well, so that mm-hmm. the scientists know have have a good understanding of um, or have the best possible science. Uh, so it's not contaminated. And so this is where you guys come in, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is your job to make sure that the sample is as pristine as possible. And we're going to throw around this term. We're going to talk about curation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've actually really talked about exactly what that is. Christopher, we'll go to you for a second. What is curation? Um, well, if you think about someone like a museum curator who's curating precious um, works of art, They're trying to preserve the condition of that artwork such that um, atmosphere and light and things of that nature don't degrade the painting over time. And Astro Materials curation is kind of like that. We have these rocks that are scientifically interesting. We sampled them from an airless body. We're bringing them back to Earth, and we want to make sure that as soon as they get here, our atmosphere isn't contaminating them. Mm. Microbes that exist in the air and on our surfaces aren't contaminating them. And we ourselves are not contaminating them because we want to preserve the scientific viability of these samples for many generations. And did that idea of, so when it comes to curating materials, astromaterials from space, really that, did that start here at the Johnson Space Center? Yes. Yeah, so the first astromaterials that were curated returned from space were the Apollo moon rocks. Mm-hmm. And we were the first facility to do something like that. And, and we've been doing it now for half a century at Johnson Space Center. Now, of course, as space exploration has increased and other countries are returning samples, there are curation facilities in Japan at JAXA um, that we work with very closely. Um, mm-hmm. There are curation facilities in Canada. Um, the European um, Space Agency, they're building their curation facilities. So the, more of these are, are, are emerging as sample return is becoming a priority for planetary science. But we have the longest history of curating moon rocks, meteorites collected from Antarctica, cosmic dust that's been collected in the stratosphere, um, solar wind from the Genesis spacecraft, um, Even the spacecraft that we bring back that get hit by micrometeorite impacts, we preserve those spacecraft hardware as part of our collection. And now, of course, OSIRIS-REx and Hayabusa 2, and in the future, Artemis, um, maybe Mars samples. This is all part of our rich legacy and history of sample curation. That's right. Now, when you t- when you think about you know you, you talk about we 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 started this and it, it expanded certainly around the world, but when it comes to what makes a curation facility a curation facility, Mari, what is it? What is inside? What are the what's the equipment, the tools, the the facilities? Mm-hmm. What makes what makes the building able to preserve on Earth 
as pristinely as possible these samples. Yeah, we're talking about uh, clean rooms, right? Like clean ISO rooms. 5 clean rooms, they have to be at a certain level, at a certain particle count level to preserve samples. And they need to be able to keep these samples free from contamination. So they're kind of sealed off laboratories from the rest of the building. And we have different infrastructure integrated in our buildings specifically for the safety of these samples. Hmm. Yeah. Also to build on that, mm -hmm. one of the most important things that we do to preserve these samples is we keep them out of oxygen. And mm -hmm. so all of the handling, the processing, opening the spacecraft, those are all done in nitrogen purged glove boxes so that we don't get alteration of our products um, of our samples from oxygen, from microbes, from other contaminants in the air, from water, especially if we're interested in the water content of a carbonaceous asteroid, we certainly don't want contamination mm -hmm. from the water in our own atmosphere, which is significant here in Houston. So, uh, yeah, that's right. I was going to say removing a lot of humidity mm -hmm. in Houston. Yeah, this must mm -hmm. be a really good facility if it's been doing that with Apollo samples for all of these years. Exactly. Right? So so nitrogen doesn't chemically react with the samples, but oxygen does? Yes. Well, oxygen is one of the most reactive gases in existence. I mean, mm -hmm. this is why oxygen is a biomarker, because if you just leave oxygen in an atmosphere with nothing producing it constantly, it reacts with all the rocks and the terrain. This is why mm -hmm. Mars kind of has that reddish brown color. So if you see oxygen in an atmosphere, it's because something's actively producing it. It's uh -huh. very reactive. Okay. And so we don't want something that's never been in an oxygen atmosphere to suddenly, <clears throat> excuse me, to suddenly see oxygen because we know from fresh meteorite falls that very soon after a meteorite falls, the atmosphere starts reacting with some of the compounds and the minerals in that meteorite. I see. Okay. So the facilities, the facilities are, are designed in such a way where inside of a glove box, let's just say, where you keep the, or inside a container where the, where that is kept, mm -hmm. it is a hundred percent nitrogen environment. And it, very close to 100%. Very close. We to might 100%. have something like five or 10 ppm of oxygen. Okay, but it's enough to say like this is not like that. Th those parts per million are not going to impact the samples. Correct. Um, Pristinity. Um, so then, what about the pressurization, right? Because after that, like I think there's something about rooms are pressurized to a certain point. So if you know air flows a certain way, right? That's so correct. So for Osiris Rex, we have those positive pressure rooms. Positive where the, pressure, okay. Mm -hmm, where the pressure is always flowing outward, like towards our exit doors. Yeah, right. And I think that was a, le a lesson from the Apollo days, right? It, like figuring out, okay, wh which way should air flow? Mm -hmm. um, because I think there. Uh, Tell me if I got this story right with with the Apollo samples. We didn't know if the Apollo samples had had yuckies, had germs inside of them. So we did negative pressure because we didn't want any of the yuckies going outside of the rooms. And then eventually determined that there's no there's no yuckies, and actually having that negative pressure is effect, uh, um, affecting the samples' pristinity. So let's let's reverse it. Let's go to positive pressure. Am I right in saying that? I'm not super familiar okay. with the original layouts of the Apollo um, labs, okay. but I do know that you know we have experience with clean rooms, or like when I say we, everyone has experience with clean rooms from sure. manufacturing semiconductors and their best practices mm. to make sure that dust is not um, contaminating in our case, rocks, mm -hmm. and in semiconductors' cases, um, the semiconductors. And so positive pressure is one way to make sure air and contaminants are always flowing out. Okay. So, yeah, let's go into those uh, those best practices then. So when it comes to handling a sample, now we, we've gone over the, the nitrogen environment, positive pressure. We're trying to keep in, the, in a building here on Johnson Space Center. We're trying to make sure those rocks are as pristine as possible. Now, what do you do as a curator, as a handler, to make sure that as you are interacting with the sample, that you are not introducing any contaminants? What's that process look like of, you know, I'm thinking those, those nice white suits mm -hmm. or something like mm -hmm. that. So what does that look like? So first, when we go into the clean room, the first thing we're going to put on is some shoe covers and a, you know, hairnet. And that's the first thing. And then you go on, dress on into your bunny suit. And that, bunny suit. Um, you know, prevents any particles that are on your body that you're carrying from home or work or wherever you're coming from to go into the lab. 
And then when you go into the lab and you're handling samples, you have to have this zen-like state. You have to move slow. You have to move cautiously. Mm. And your work, your movements are just all very careful, very different from when you're working outside of a clean room, outside of, you know, a regular lab space. You know, the way I would handle say my computer or something would not be the same way I would handle a sample. It's just completely different process for me. So what's your what's your um, routine then? As you're going into the lab, mm -hmm. you know, you skip breakfast. You uh, <laughs> <laughs> Definitely do not have coffee in the morning. Don't have <laughs> coffee. Absolutely avoid it. The same way I would avoid coffee for a, right before a flight is how I do it for handling samples. It's, it's, I'm not going to drink coffee. <laughs> so it's interesting because I was talking with Cherise Kreischer uh, mm -hmm. about handling the angst, angst accord the uh, the Apollo sample core and she, I I asked her that same question I was like I don't think I could drink coffee because I would be all jittery right, right? she's like no mm -hmm. I, I had coffee every morning mm -hmm. so everybody has their special kind of zen like routine to right. get into handling the sample I'm walking into the lab and I'm thinking okay there's nobody else in this room no <laughs> one is looking at me like that, that's how it feels like oh, I have to you're completely blocking out. I'm blocking out everything because mm. I just want to zone and laser focus on the samples and the hardware that we're manipulating because it's just so delicate you know it's mm. Yeah. And how long are you actually with the gloves and doing that before you need a break because, you know, mm -hmm. a fatigue or whatever? Mm -hmm. So those clean room bunny suits, you're 10 degrees automatically, like just 10 degrees hotter or warmer than uh, regular, like when you're outside of a bunny suit. And I would say three to four hours. You want to start in the morning and then by lunchtime, you want to get a good break because yeah. it, it is a lot of rigorous effort from your body and, mm -hmm. you know, physically and mentally. Yes. When yeah. you're in there. Mm -hmm. Are you handling samples too, Christopher? Or I'm mostly mm -hmm. overseeing the sample handling of a specific um, part of the TAGSAM deintegration where mm. we're going to be removing the contact pads from the um, TAGSAM. There are 24 small disc-like um, collectors around the perimeter of the TAGSAM which are coated with a stainless steel Velcro. And the idea was that when that touched the asteroid surface, it would sample the very top layer of the regolith. Ah. And that's important because at that top surface layer, there are effects that from micrometeorite impacts, from irradiation, from galactic cosmic rays and so, um, solar um, rays, um, we call that cumulatively space weathering. And that affects surfaces of bodies and the spectral interpretation of those bodies. So there are a lot of scientists who are interested in what happens to that top layer. And so the contact pads were included specifically for that research. Perfect. Okay, let's go into OSIRIS-REx curation because I think this is super interesting, right? We talked about glove boxes and we talked about some of the facilities. I think what's unique about this is to prepare for OSIRIS-REx, there had to be special considerations. And we taught and we touched on it in the very beginning that this is the largest sample return since the Apollo days, but it's going to come in this giant container which does not fit in any traditional like airlock uh, glove box sort of thing. You had mm -hmm. to sort of design a special way to extract the samples from this thing. And you're talking about the tag sandwich which yes. is a component of that. So you guys, part of the, part of what you, part of your story is coming up with the solution for how we are we going to get this sample? Right? Yeah. Um, there were a lot of discussions about how we were going to initially open the science canister. Mm -hmm. um, there's a nitrogen purge on that canister, but Lockheed originally envisioned opening that in air. And all the scientists said, well, we want that done in a nitrogen glove box. Nothing that we had existed that could accommodate opening the spacecraft science canister in a glove box. So we had to design something from scratch. Lockheed Martin being the designer of the, uh, of uh, working on the sample canister of yes. OSIRIS-REx. That's, yes. that's why they were saying that? Okay, okay. Yes. So you guys had to work and basically build, design a glove box, and you did it here at the Justice Space Center. We designed the glove box here. It was designed manufactured it. at a company in Italy, but we designed it here 
Um, we designed both glove boxes. So there are two main glove boxes. There's the one where the science canister will be opened, mm -hmm. and then there's the one where the tag SAM, the touch and go sample acquisition mechanism, will be disassembled and the sample will be poured into trays. And that's the second glove box, which is the tag SAM glove box. So part of the media day, I got to see sort of the the mock-ups of this. Yes. Because obviously, in order to give the designs overseas to mm -hmm. actually manufacture these glove boxes, you had to figure out exactly what they would look like. Because you said, mm -hmm. Christopher, that it didn't exist. Yes. So you had to sort of come up with that. And I think that story is interesting. It happened at an interesting time yes. during COVID. Yes. So, so what was that story? Um. The first mock-up that I designed um, was primarily to assess the ergonomics of the glove box. When you're working in a glove box for a long period of time, um, there's fatigue that can come from standing in an awkward position, you're opening containers, and there could be potential for long-term cumulative injuries. And so we wanted to design a glove box that we knew was ergonomically suitable for our processors. And so I built um, a mock-up out of foam core. And once that was done, the processors used it and said, yes, this is very comfortable. We said, hey, why don't we take a 3D printed tag SAM apart in it and see what that process is like. And this evolved into doing rehearsals for the disassembly procedure in these mock-ups. Um, and then before the second curation rehearsal, we built a second mock-up, which is the one that you, the foam core one mm -hmm. that you saw, and that had windows. Um, it had a lot of the hardware that we use to move the tag SAM from the disassembly chamber into the documentation chamber, and that's been modified and um, used quite extensively for the past two years. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it, it, to that exact point, right? How are the ergonomics? You'd kind of design, you have an idea, you actually go in and try it out, you mm -hmm. rehearse it, and you're mm -hmm. like, oh, I think we can make a couple of tweaks. Exactly. Yeah, and so that was your process. Yes, yes, and then um, the second. The third mock-up that we have for the canister glove box, we actually made that out of plywood and aluminum extrusion. And we've just been using those very extensively to test our procedures, to develop a, um, a curation procedure. And it was just really satisfying when the glove boxes actually got here. And we did a rehearsal in the glove boxes for the first time how similar it felt to what we had mm -hmm. done. We had developed that muscle memory from mm -hmm. the mock-ups. Oh, that's awesome. That's very, very special. So that's, I think that's a huge point because when this, when the sample container comes back, you can almost rely a little bit on muscle memory. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so much, it's not like you're playing with this tag SAM for the very first time. You have had a, a 3D printed tag SAM that you've been working with and manipulating and figuring out how things go together mm -hmm. for quite some time. Right. So when we integrate those muscle memories, right? That muscle memory from using the mock-ups where we're practicing, you know, it's not like we're practicing for the first time when we're in the clear room. One of the things was that we had recently was curation rehearsal number three. And that was for the first time where we used all of our equipment and to open up the canister, to open up the tag SAM, to use special tools and tweezers or whatever it was and it was like I was doing it again. Like it was, it was familiar. It was the movements were familiar. It hmm. wasn't. I wasn't caught off guard. If that makes any sense. It does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, you were. It was almost like that was the thirtieth tag Sam that you had <laughs> undone or something like that, right? right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now, um, visually, ta the tag Sam. I got to actually see the three D printed model. So for the first mm -hmm. time, I actually got to visualize what this thing was and how it appeared in a glove box and how you would work with it. Um, you talked about these little uh, Velcro things at the very top. Um, that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like little Velcro buttons. Um, and if you, if you were to stick Velcro in some rocks and turn it up, it would probably pick up some of the little pebbles and little fine, fine smaller particles, right? And that's the idea of what you were saying. Yes, and, and so the challenge for us once those come out is how do you remove those particles? Because now we're in a realm of sample that we consider small particles. These are mm -hmm. millimeter and smaller size particles, um, and that boundary is significant because at that scale, 
things like gravity aren't the primary um, forces that govern those bodies. Electrostatics become much more significant. Mm -hmm. So there are challenges for manipulating sub-millimeter samples because they stick to tools, they charge up and, and accelerate away unpredictably. And so that's a whole realm of sample preparation that Maritza and I have been really practicing for many years now. So when, when I'm, I'm trying to imagine this process. I'm trying to imagine a little button, a little uh, Velcro button, and you are in the glove box with little tweezers and meticulously picking out small little particles from mm -hmm. in between those Velcro pieces. And you have to do that meticulously mm -hmm. for a long time to get every piece. No piece missed. You can't mm -hmm. miss anything. And you have to put it somewhere. Am I, am I characterizing this yeah. right? So maybe if you think of the beach and there's a lot of sand everywhere and you want to take some tweezers and want to grab a single grain of sand, that's that's what we're doing. But we're, we're grabbing them from screw heads, you know, we're grabbing them from uh, tiny loops at the micro scale. Oh my yeah, goodness. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, this is where that rehearsal, this is where that skill, those fine motor skills of actually practicing and you mentioned, Mari, a zen-like mode. Right. You have to really <laughs> <laughs> like turn everything off and relax those because you have to this is this is why you have to grab the small little things and then where do you put them after you grab them uh we have to containerize them containerize. whether in some concavity slides or in some sample special sample containers that our engineering team has designed and so this is, I think, another important element of what this process looks like, right? You're not just when you get this sample, you're you're not just taking it all out and chopping it up into little pieces and sending it out, you are categorizing and documenting mm -hmm. where each of these tiny particles came from, putting them into containers, labeling them, because what you want to do is give the scientists the best, most representative sample when they ask for a very specific thing. And so that's part of what you're going to be doing over this time is is taking all the samples. Is This is the curation process, taking all the samples, categorizing them, putting them into containers, labeling them, and then you also have some instruments that you're going to be working with too, right? Yeah. Um, one of the most important things that we do is build a catalog of the samples that catalog. we've removed that includes information about where it came from, um, if photos, photo, um, photographs, um, um, masses, if they're large enough to weigh. Um, we conclude the masses and we build a catalog of available samples so that investigators who want to do research can make intelligent choices mm -hmm. about what they want to um, um, study. And we even have instruments that we're considering using, um, like um, an XCT, which is X-ray computed tomography, that can look through a sample and see inclusions and clasts inside the sample. And people can make choices based on that data as well. See, and that this is where those instruments come on, mm -hmm. come in, right? Now, not only are you dividing the little uh, pieces and, and categorizing them, you're using some of the instruments we have here at the Johnson Space Center mm -hmm. to yes. make better under uh, to better understand what they are. Yes. So when researchers ask for them, you can give them you can give them some pretty good good data. Yes, and many of the research we we have a number of scientists in um, Aries that will be doing the preliminary research on these samples to understand what they are. So that goes beyond curation and into research, but we work closely with them as well. Um, one of the sample preparation techniques that we do for a transmission electron microscope is to take one of those small particles and bed them in a resin and then take 70 nanometer thick slices of those and put them on a grid so that they're electron transparent. And that allows us to get mineralogy information and um, crystal, um, crystalline information about samples that are 10 microns big. Whoa. I'm guessing putting it in the resin allows it to go into a machine so that machine can slice it to that precise. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. We call that ultramicrotomy. Um, and Mari huh. is an expert at that technique and will probably be doing some of that for some of the smaller samples on Osiris Rex. And I'm sure you've had a lot of rehearsals with that 
Today. Hours of training with Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> Ultra microtomy. Yeah, that, that takes a lot of uh, time to, oh, to learn and to process. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling ahead of like just, you, we talked about rehearsals and you've said hours and hours of training. Do you mm -hmm. feel prepared or, or over the next couple of months until the, until the sample returns, you're going to keep rehearsing right i mean i feel prepared at the moment like if we were to oh, get this <laughs> tomorrow you'd be good. if i can if i need to process a sample tomorrow i feel like i can i can do it I, i'm prepared for that but you know we're going to keep rehearsing keep preparing and it's just nonstop. <laughs> it's just nonstop. One of the things that I did was, you know how you can pile rocks when you're going hiking or something? You can do a little rock pile. Mm -hmm. I do it that at the small scale, at a smaller scale. So imagine something like smaller than a golf ball size and um, that can range from sand particle to a golf ball size particle or something like that, like <laughs> a rock. I will try to um, make a little rock pile or I will try to... Um, extract individual grains and try to make an M shape or something like that. And I do that at the micro scale that Christopher's talking about, the nanometer scale, and I also do it at a macro scale. Oh my, what a fun training. way to rehearse. Yeah. It's also good for me. It's like a stress relief too. Like I, the, I'll just get in my zone and be like, okay, I'm not talking to people today. I'm in the lab today. <laughs> I'm just like working with rocks just today. Just getting the, refining the technique right. by doing all these fun mm -hmm. little games. Let's mm -hmm. make an M today. Let's stack today. Because you got to be very careful because in the process you can lose um, a particle if they're static or something like that, right? And you got to be able to see it. You got to be able to call it out where it's falling. And if you don't, then, you know, it's a problem, so that's why you do it. Just mm -hmm. so okay, because every th this is an important thing to to drive home as well. Is you cannot lose even mm -hmm. the smallest little mm -hmm. grain. You every, keep everything. Everything has to be accounted mm -hmm. for. Yeah, um, with one of our other collections, um, the um, Cosmic Dust collection, the particles there are usually between five and twenty microns, and. You, there aren't a lot of them on collectors. You might get one or two that are actually extraterrestrial. And I always think when you're handling that, that could be a PhD thesis. That could have something in it that's never been seen before. And so you don't want to lose that one thing that could have been, you know, the paper, a uh, paper in science or nature magazine. And it's, it's you know, you, you you want to remember that, but you also don't want the anxiety of handling that while you're, picking it up because mm -hmm. that'll make you more nervous. So you have to have a balance of this is important. We don't want to lose it. Also, though, whatever happens, happens. Ah, okay. And but that's why you're you're working everything out with these sort of techniques, the stacking techniques, the mm -hmm. M shapes, those sorts of things, because you're introducing new challenges to right. yourself so you can work it out exactly. in the moment and be ready for handling the sample. Yeah, for example, when you're making a when I'm doing a stacking challenge, I'm trying to go as high as I can before, you know, my stack tips over, but also the higher you go, the more unstable it is. Mm -hmm. So you have to work even extra carefully around your stack. You know what I mean? Mm. Any kind of vibration that's going to cause your sample to move. Yeah. And we don't want our samples to move at all. We want to limit any type of vibration. And of course, the the practice is just, you're just using simulated rocks and right. simulant. It's, it's nothing you really, like, there's not a risk of actually, like, playing with actual science, scientific exactly. samples. Mm -hmm. This is this is your rehearsal area. This mm -hmm. is your practice area. Depending on where we are in the lab, we'll practice with um, an asteroid regolith simulant, mm -hmm. um, which is mostly a basalt and some other things. I'm not exactly sure the formula for the simulant. Mm -hmm. But when we first started practicing, especially with ultramicrotomy, we would practice with carbonaceous meteorites like Orgay and Murchison and to get an idea of what the sample preparation will really be like mm -hmm. for, um, for OSIRIS-REx. Right, and these are meteorites that landed on Earth yes. and had that ablation on the outside. So, yes. like, it, it, they're not as pristine as the Osiris Rex ones. Yes, and but, we've we've even had some limited experience so far handling samples from Hayabusa two, which are asteroid samples from Ryugu. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that one obviously is that's from space. Yes, and yeah, we want to keep those pristine. Yes, as that's well. the closest analog that we have to what. Bennu samples may look like. Mm -hmm. And obviously handling those is much, you know, more representative of what OSIRIS-REx will be than maybe the simulant. We mm -hmm. think. We think. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's right. We think. We're we don't find know. Out. Yes, we We're don't know. Find out. Yeah, we think. <laughs> so what does your uh, year, what does your schedule look like, Mari, after the sample returns? So it comes, it's going to 
re-enter uh, the sample can canister is going to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere on the twenty fourth. Mm -hmm. Then what what does your schedule look like after that? How how long are you going to be meticulously going into the zen-like state and working mm -hmm. with the samples? So first thing is that it lands in Utah and we're not processing sample right away in that mm. moment or not i'm not i'm not taking apart attacks i'm in utah right i'm just photo documenting at that time you will be in utah video. photo documenting right though. exactly okay. when they're moving the sample canister inside i mean sample cap return capsule inside the laboratory okay mm -hmm. that's what i'll be doing and it'll be just you know nonstop i'm photo documenting everything you are okay mm -hmm. are you going to be working in the lab though when it gets actually when it gets to johnson space when center? it gets to johnson space center yes i okay. will be working in the lab i will be um assisting with any type of camera uh, setup or not camera setup but it's like lighting setup or any type of it's not camera setup is it <laughs> it's more of like uh helping manip move the hardware the canister lid when erica and joe are taking photos and stuff that's what i'll yes. be doing starting and then it's opening up the canister and things like that there's different roles we all have our separate roles and, oh, okay mm -hmm. you don't you don't rotate the roles um, we each have, we've each practiced and rehearsed certain steps of the disassembly. Mm -hmm. Um, the ah. step that, um, Mari and myself and two other of our processors are going to be most involved in during the procedure is the, when we disassemble the tag SAM, the first thing we have to do is remove the screw heads that clamp everything in place. Those screw heads might actually have valuable sample lodged inside of them, which are analogous to what we got from the contact pads. Oh. So we'll have to remove those. And then um, that's probably the only time when I'm personally going to be handling any samples. Then once those are removed, um, Mari and Julia and Curtis, which are two of our other processors, will begin the process of removing the contact pads and containerizing them mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you can't get to the bulk sample before you remove the contact pads and that's going to be a very time consuming step mm -hmm. oh okay this is those those contact pads are the little velcro pieces that we were talking about so mm -hmm. you're just going to take the whole thing off and put it and containerize them right so that way you're not spending a lot of time actually doing it there. We want to get those. We'll, we'll work with them later because yes. we want the sample inside, exactly. right? right. Um, ah, okay. And, and even before that, whenever we're in the canister glove box, when the canister lid is being opened, the, the tag sam is still there. We'll be doing a tag sam flip and taking a quick look sample. So these are quick look samples are the samples you first see around the avionics deck and, you know, just stuff that we expect to see hopefully outside of the tag sam, not just what's inside the tag sam. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. And this is, so this may be our, that quick look may be the first, like. We anticipate that that will be the first um, look at what Bennu material might be. That will be very, very exciting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who gets to do that job? You guys got you got the screws. You got the 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 screws, Christopher. You got the mm -hmm. uh, you got the little uh, Velcro buttons. Who gets the quick quick look? Rachel and I will be collecting quick look. Oh, you'll mm -hmm. be part of it too. Mm -hmm. Oh, we'll that's be so exciting! Quick look, uh, containerizing it into some concavity slides and measuring it, photo documenting it. And, wow! Yeah, and okay. then the science team will be there, ready to receive that sample and do the quick look analysis here at Johnson Space Center. So we don't have to ship it anywhere. It's going to go out of the lab and into an SEM, and it's going to start being characterized. <laughs> you guys both have huge smiles on your faces, mm -hmm. like you're just imagining that moment of actually handling that sample. Because especially you, Christopher, you say you've been with OSIRIS-REx since 2016. Yes. That's a long time. And now we're just months away from you actually getting a look at that stuff. Yes. I started um, at Johnson Space Center about two months after OSIRIS-REx launched. Mm -hmm. So it's been a process. It's always been that thing in the distance. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we figured, well, probably two years or so um, before it comes back, there's going to be a lot of work to do. And then the pandemic hit. And so we couldn't do a lot of the things we wanted to do on site. So when we finally did get back on site, there was just so much work to do mm -hmm. in such a short period of time. So much to develop, um, the glove boxes, the hardware, the containers, the tools we'll be using. All of that was developed in a very short amount of time. I mean, I heard that... Uh 
the the COVID, the pandemic didn't necessarily stop you. It's not like the work ceased until we were able to come back into the lab. I heard you were cutting pieces from like your own household furniture. To- <laughs> yes, I, yes, I built one of the mock-ups in my living room. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so you didn't have to stop, right? That's, that's so you, true. And, and yes. what what work was done while you were building the mock-ups in the living room? You did you make any adjustments to to make the glove box that much better through that work? Um. That mock-up was our, our second mock-up that was made out of foam core. And during our rehearsals, we had reached a certain level where we said, well, for this to be useful, we need things like an airlock because we want to practice moving the tag sam into the airlock. We want windows because right now we're just going and reaching through the windows and grabbing things. That's not realistic. We want a more realistic um, um, thing. And we did that and... Rehearsal two was in November or October 2021. And a lot of the things that we learned, we learned, for instance, that that mock-up as it existed at the time wasn't long enough to do all of the work that we wanted to do. So we actually extended the length of the mock-up. And um, this was really valuable because you don't want to discover that after you've spent, you know, a lot of money on creating a real glove box. <laughs> so that, and that's important because that work needed to continue and you guys found yes. interesting ways to solve those problems and decide to extend the glove box and keep marching forward to prepare for this moment. Yes, our entire team was really creative in how they prepared for OREX even when they didn't have access to being on site. Yep. Mari, when you think about yourself driving through Mexico, looking at the rocks and the mountains in the distance and mm-hmm. thinking, I want to go to there mm-hmm. and I want to explore. And now you're talking about being here at the Johnson Space Center, working with samples, f- uncovering stories of the life and the universe and stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you think you're fulfilling that dream that you had when you were driving? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, yes. <laughs> That's it's awesome. A, it's a, it, there's a lot of moments where I'm just like, oh, pinch me. Is this a dream? Like, it, it's, yeah. there's a lot of moments like that. It's it's a huge deal for myself. It's a huge deal for my family. You know, it's 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 a big thing. Yeah, and you're not the only one. Like you said, you just have a dedicated team, right? That's right. that's all has is is so passionate about doing the right thing for these samples, exploring, mm-hmm. and being a part of this. And just hearing both of your stories and your passion and your commitment to to getting us to this moment, getting us ready for Osiris Rex sample return, and we are here. We're ready at the Johnson Space Center. Very very meaningful. Christopher and Madi, thank you so much for coming on Houston Mobile Podcast. What a fascinating conversation. I am so pumped for (laughs) this sample return. I'm sure you guys are too. You got a lot of work ahead of you. So I appreciate you dedicating at least a little bit of time ahead of this very, very busy period that you're going to come up on uh, to speak with us and and share what you're going to be doing. So thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been really exciting to talk about what we're expecting to happen soon. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. This was awesome. It was a pleasure. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Hope you learned something today. It was really awesome to really get the excitement from Christopher and Marty today that we were recording this just... Um, couple of months uh, ahead of Osiris-Rex return to Earth, and they've been doing a lot of prep. They're really, really excited. And so I was, I was, I was really happy to capture their time while they had it, because from the time that we recorded this on, they were they're going to be really, really busy preparing for Osiris-Rex return. So I hope you really enjoyed it. This is not the first time we've discussed Osiris-Rex, though. You can go back and listen to episode 27, The Search for Life, which we recorded before O-Rex even reached Bennu. And then if you want to continue that story, jump forward to 285, Return of O-Rex, part one, and we talk more about the spacecraft's arrival at Bennu and the initial prep. You can go to nasa.gov for the latest on OSIRIS-REx and Bennu. Be sure to watch our coverage of the return of OREX on September 24th. You can go to nasa.gov slash podcast to listen to our show and the many others we have across the agency. Uh, And if you go to ours, Houston, we have a podcast. You can listen to any of our episodes in no particular order. On social media, we're on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can use the hashtag NASA, Ask NASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea or ask a question for the show. Just make sure to mention, is for us at Houston, we have a podcast. 
This episode was recorded on July 25th, 2023. Thanks to Will Flato, Dane Turner, Justin Herring, Abby Graff, Belinda Polito, Jane Jennings, and Shaniqua Vereen. And of course, thanks again to Christopher and Mari for taking the time for coming on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.